Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. A couple of announcements tonight. Just to remind everybody, make sure you've got it on your calendar. It's coming, uh, it's coming Saturday. We will have the uh, ladies' prayer breakfast at 10.30 here. Uh, prayer, prayer meeting. Oh, at the West Falls. At the West Falls. So see uh, Tuts or Allen afterwards if you need directions to get there. That will be at 10.30 this Saturday morning, December the 12th. Also uh, coming up, we will have a schedule in uh, around the holidays where we do not have Bible class on Christmas Eve, but we will have Bible class normal schedule on uh, New Year's Eve. And then I will be leaving and departing on the 5th of January to go to Kiev, but we'll still have Bible class. It'll be a little bouncy at places. But David Dunn will cover the first Thursday and first Tuesday I'm gone. And then at the end of that week, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum will be coming in, and he will be teaching a three-week course on Israelology, the missing link in systematic theology, which is based on his uh, doctoral dissertation, but of course he's taught at Schaefer Seminary for a number of years, and that will be on Friday evening from 7 to 9, and then on Saturday morning from 8 to 12. So that will be three consecutive weeks. The first Sunday I'm gone, Andy Wood, who has got just received his Ph.D. from Dallas Seminary, moved to Houston, teaches at College of Biblical Studies, will be uh, covering the pulpit. The second Sunday I'm gone, Arnold will be covering the pulpit. Now, I know that some of you have a little trouble understanding that Polish, Yiddish, Russian, German, uh, Brooklyn, Texas accent, but if you sit and listen long enough, it'll be, probably be better because it's in the morning. When he gets tired, it gets a little, it gets a little more difficult. Dan and I had breakfast with Arnold yesterday morning. Did you have trouble understanding Arnold? That's why we have friends. So, okay. So you're going to come up here and take over the microphone? <laughs> okay. So that's uh, just in case you hadn't noticed, Dan Ingram, pastor of the National Capital Bible Church, is here. Gene Brown is also here. We have the celebrities with us tonight. Gene Brown is here. And... Um, so it was a uh, tremendous ca- conference. I'll say a few words about that after we get started. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. I noticed today that uh, Charlotte Pruitt 
I went back into the hospital. Was there another? And we got to give thanks where I've got a job. I just want to make sure you still had the job tonight. Okay. Good. All right. So we can we can be thankful for that. I know there's several others who are in tenuous situations, so we need to continue to pray. The Lord knows who they are, so you can be uh, be praying for them, and we can uh, give thanks for Ralph uh, <coughs> Ralph getting a job and continue to pray for Charlotte. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the many ways you provide for us and that above all things you have provided for us through your word, that in your word you teach us how to think, how to respond, how to react to the uh, vicissitudes of life and how to handle the situation when things are going very hard, very difficult. And Father, that doesn't mean it's easy to pass the test, but we have the resources we need to do that. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are facing challenges with uh, their jobs, facing ch- challenges with their health. We pray for, especially for Charlotte. We're thankful for Ralph's job and, and for others that are, even the, many that are listening perhaps, that are uh, struggling with the economy. We just pray that you would supply their their needs. Father, we thank you tonight that as we study your word, we have God the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand these things and that our responsibility is to study your word and to walk by means of the Spirit. We pray you'll challenge us with what we study tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm sure there's at least one person out there tonight watching live streaming who didn't hear the announcement and wasn't aware of not having Bible class on Tuesday night because we were off at the pre-trib rapture uh, study group meeting in Dallas because I know I got one email on that today that wanting to know if there was some sort of problem with the website because there was nothing there for Tuesday night Bible class and they couldn't live stream. So <clears throat> we also probably should make a couple of uh, have something posted on on the, both websites indicating the schedule as uh, we get into the holiday schedule and then the uh, January schedule as well. We had a very good conference. This was one of the better ones. I don't know. This was my 12th one, so I don't remember. There have been some that are better, some that are not as good, but they're all pretty good. I mean, they're, at the worst, you've got an A-, minus, and one or two might have hit an A+, plus, so they're all uh, very good. And it's always great to to see a number of pastors and a number uh, and pastors bringing more and more people from their congregations uh, to the conference. I think that was one of the great uh, things that uh, Tim LaHaye developed in the about 2000 or 2001 was when he began to open it up to non-professionals to come and and to sit, listen, and to and to uh, just have the opportunity to study the Word through via this Bible conference. And the last couple of years, we've had around 350 to 400 people in attendance, which is which is really tremendous. And so the Lord's provided that in in, in a lot of different ways. And to see a lot of the pastors that are there. Uh, that I remember when I first went 12 years ago, there, I was the only one from a, a doctrinal church, teaching church background. And there were only about 70 there, but then it was just scholars, pastors, uh, professors 
And so when I got home, I started emailing all the papers to guys and calling them and everything. So it's it's uh, really good to see so many so many more that were uh, there and in attendance from around the country. And on Tuesday we had a uh, we had a meeting every year. We try to get a hospitality suite so we can have uh, room at lunch to have a lot of the doctrinal pastors come up to the room. We call room service and order about $300 worth of hamburgers <laughs> by the time everybody gets through putting in their orders. And so they can meet each other. And a lot of the pastors that uh, many people have heard about and heard the names here and there over the years and they just have never met uh, get to meet each other. And by the way, Kendall Weeks was there. We've been praying for him for years because of his um, uh, colon cancer, and he is just as jovial and happy and glad to see me, and I'm glad to see him uh, every year, and it was just, just good to, uh, really good to see him, and he seems to be doing very well, and, and despite the doctor's claim, uh, claim that he should have died about three or four years ago, the Lord is proving them all to be liars. So uh, Kendall is doing great, and he's thankful for, for all of the prayers. So we had the, the conference this year was not around any specific theme whatsoever, just different issues related to eschatology. Uh, there are ten sessions in all. The, then there's a banquet on Monday night. The banquet speaker was Chuck Smith, who was the pastor of the uh, Calvary Chapel, the original Calvary Chapel Church out in Costa Mesa, California back in the 60s when uh, a bunch of hippies moved down there out of their commune up in uh, San Francisco and moved in to Calvary Chapel, and that, that really gave birth to what was known as a Jesus movement, and that gave birth to the Jesus music and contemporary chorus music, and Chuck Smith was um, pretty strong, charismatic. He had been uh, uh, ordained in Foursquare Gospel, and but he saw all these radical, long-haired hippies coming in, and he knew they needed the Word, so he started teaching the Bible three or four nights a week, and um, he didn't get in a lot of depth, but it was good, solid Bible teaching, and that church just really exploded in the early 90s. It was one of the ten largest churches in the U.S. and spawned. They, they purposefully set out a plan to plant other churches. As they got to a certain size, they would see groups of people, 50, 100, 150, coming from certain areas in California. Then they would put money into that church, for uh, five years to pay a pastor, to pay the rent, to pay the bills, to get that group of believers out of diapers and uh, walking. And now there's about 1,200 Calvary chapels around the country. And you can't do anything. And 15 years ago, you couldn't go anywhere in Russia, hardly, where there were American missionaries that you weren't running into missionaries out of Calvary Chapel. So they've had a tremendous uh, ministry uh, over the over the years, and Chuck spoke on Monday night. The first speaker was a guy named Dr. Barry Horner, who's got his degrees from uh, Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, and interestingly enough, Westminster Seminary, which is a covenant, Reformed covenant theology school, and he has recently written a book called um, Future Israel. And I've read about the first two chapters, and... I always make a caveat. When I endorse a book or something that's good to read, that doesn't mean I agree with everything that he says. 
I have, I don't know everything he says. I haven't read the book yet, but a lot of people that I trust, Tommy, Randy Price, uh, Ed Heinsohn, a number of others have read it and are extremely impressed with it as one of the most articulate, well-argued theological cases for why evangelicals need to support Israel and the state of, and the state of Israel from a, uh, a biblical, uh, argument. And so he, uh, spoke uh, Monday morning on the reactions and responses to to that book, and then uh, following him, I spoke and gave a uh, paper on the chronology of the and the chronological issues dealing with the chronological issues within the tribulation period, the seal tru- seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments. In the afternoon, Charlie Clough uh, continued uh, his paper that he had begun last year, dealing with interpretive issues. Uh, facing eschatological studies and evangelicalism specifically as they are uh, seen in interpreting geophysical disasters. And last year he spent most of his time just dealing with the hermeneutics issue. He gave the same paper for us at, at, at the Chafer Conference because there there is the, more and more of a movement among traditional literalists toward a non-literal uh, interpretation and the the, re, the danger of that and the the problem with that is that you can affirm inerrancy all day long that the, every word is inspired by God, but you can give it all away by the way you interpret it, and you can just say, well, that's not to be understood literally, and it really isn't meant quite that way, and this is what is dominating uh, dominating the seminaries today. Uh, all of the ones that were so strong twenty thirty years ago are all being heavily influenced by this approach to hermeneutics. And hermeneutics, just as it is wiping out uh, in many ways the correct understanding of the United States Constitution, it's wiping out the correct understanding of the Bible. The battlefield today is in the area of hermeneutics. And then Tim Demme. Uh, Tim Demme is a uh, <coughs> chaplain in the, uh, in the Navy, I think he's still active duty. Uh, Tim and I went through, uh, and as well as Tommy, we're all in our THM program together at Dallas Seminary, and then uh, Tim and I were also in the doctoral program in church history together. Uh, Tim then went on to just, an, an, I think he's got like three or four doctorates now and four or five master's degrees. He's just educated way beyond anybody's pay grade, but he and he teaches... Um, He's the Associate Professor of Military Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And he <clears throat> presented a paper dealing with the uh, history of Christian Zionism. And I understand that was, that was uh, uh, very well done. Then there was also, let me see, the next day, I believe the first guy out was Dr. John Whitcomb, who's the co-author with Henry Morris of the Genesis Flood back in the early 60s. And Dr. Whitcomb is now, I believe, 86 years old. And if the Lord does not take him home by the first week of or second week of March, he will be the uh, speaker, morning speaker at the Chafer Conference when we deal with creation evolution themes. And one of the things we're going to do at the conference one afternoon, and that was the announcement I was trying to think of last Thursday night, uh, <clears throat> to let people who are or live streaming become aware of this so that they can make their their plans to come. But 
one of the things that um, <clears throat> that we're going to do is take one of the afternoon sessions and have a <clears throat> an interview with Charlie Clough, John Whitcomb, and Larry Vardaman, who is going to be the evening speaker. He, uh, Dr. Vardaman's been with ICR for 20 years, intimately involved with a lot of their research, a lot of the technical uh, things that they've been working on over the years, and he'll be speaking on, on uh, a very significant topic of, of global warming on Monday night. Who knows where we'll be by then. If this winter keeps going the way it's going, we may have to uh, cancel because of a blizzard in Houston. But uh, we've got he'll speak on global warming Monday night, Tuesday night on the real age of the earth, and Wednesday night on the ice ages after the flood and coming to grips with, with that. So, But one of the things we want to do is have an interview with them on the history of the modern creationist movement, how it got started, what the challenges were at the very beginning, and reason one reason Charlie's up here, some of you may not know this, Charlie wrote his master's thesis at Dallas Seminary in 1967, much to the chagrin of the head of the department, on the reactions to the book, The Genesis Flood, published by Henry Morris and written by Henry Morris and John Whitcomb. And the evangelical community then as now was not real happy with the creationist position of a literal six 24-hour day creationist movement. In fact, uh, the, the um, head of the Department of Dallas Seminary at that time and today uh, <clears throat> is not really doesn't really think that's the best interpretation of, Ge- of Genesis 7. Not the I mean the same individual. He hasn't been at Dallas in 30 years, but uh, that Bruce Waltke and Bruce Waltke hasn't held to a literal view in, in many, many years, and he threw out dispensationalism a number of years ago. Although he's a great scholar in many ways and very helpful in many ways, he's he's <clears throat> got other problems as well. But Dr. Whitcomb and Dr. Vardaman and Charlie can give us a great perspective on the past, present, and future for the creationist uh, movement. Then Wayne House gave and gave perhaps one of the most difficult papers to work your way through, <laughs> because it was technical, excellent paper, excellent research, something that I think every pastor is going to refer to at one time or another. But he went through in painstaking detail uh, all of the views of the early church fathers and their interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. And so that was tough for a lot of people to to hang in there through that paper because it's 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 rugged trying to read through all of, all of those quotes, but it's very necessary, very important uh, material to be aware of. Uh, Randy Price also spoke yesterday, gave a little update on the Ark expedition last summer, and uh, I'm leaving out Paul. What was that? What was his name? Uh, no, the other guy, Volts, Vlatch, Mike Vlatch, spoke on. Uh, I missed that one. What was that topic? The key, oh, that's right, the Kingdom Program in Matthew, Kingdom Program in Matthew. And then, um, that's right, Mark Hitchcock gave us a good good overview of this whole issue related to 2012 and the Mayan calendar and all of the things that are going on with that. So not that any of us really needed to know that that wasn't right, but it's going to be very popular and become an increasingly, uh, and it's going to be increasingly discussed in the media uh, over the next uh, couple of years, and so it sort of helps to be a little bit knowledgeable about 
uh, what that's all about and what's going on. And then the last paper was written by Paul Wilkinson, who's a who's from the northwest of England, and he is the associate minister at the Hazel Grove Full Gospel Church. And as Tommy said, you know, Pentecostals in Britain just aren't like Pentecostals here. I mean, he just has great material. And uh, both last year and this year, the pastor of their church has written a song for us, and the words have been excellent. And uh, I thought the music this year was good. I wasn't as crazy about the music last year, but it was still good. And it certainly wasn't, I mean, the words were just fabulous in both cases, so that doesn't fit with a lot of stuff that's being written today. And um, But Paul is just very impressive. He's young. He looks like he's in his mid-30s which looks younger and younger every year. And, yeah, he's our age. Well, he's our age. He found the fountain of youth, didn't he? But he, he had written his Ph.D. dissertation on Christian Zionism and the role of John Nelson Darby, which was uh, published, came out last year, which, again, it was just, just excellent. But he has a real love for history and research. And this year he, he gave a paper that was entitled, um, what was it, Across the Atlantic? I think I've got it right here. Oh, yeah, that's good. You Shall Be My Witnesses, the Transatlantic History of the Prophetic Witness Movement. And it was really interesting. In fact, I'm going to somehow get this posted up on the website in the same little box with the uh, uh, my paper and the PowerPoint because it's good for you all to read something like this. It tells us about our roots and where we came from theologically. And it deals with the movements that were going on in England from the middle of the 19th century to and how it went back and forth across the Atlantic among the English-speaking peoples um, in the in the 19th, early uh, mid 19th century and early uh, early 20th century, and is uh, was very interesting. It shows a lot of good, interesting insights in Dwight Moody's ministry and Moody's uh, work in England, and then coming back over here, uh, Spurgeon, also a number of names that many of us. Are, are not very familiar with. And so it just gives you a lot of good, uh, good connections. You may have heard names like, uh, G. Campbell Morgan. You may have heard, uh, names like John, John Darby and, and two or three others. A.C. Dixon, who was an American who also, uh, preached over in England quite a bit and some other, uh, lesser known names. But you'll see how all of these people interconnected and it was, uh, very, uh, very interesting. And so that was the focus of his paper. But there was one little element of his paper that um, really struck everyone. And so we may get to Hebrews tonight, but I I wanted to talk about this and just borrow material from uh, his paper and then get to the middle of this because it was so interesting. And I've entitled this, Another Tale from the Titanic, Two Men and a Testimony. This is the rest of the story about the Titanic that you never heard about, but that should have been made into a movie and would have been a better movie than any film that's ever been done on the Titanic. But to understand this, you have to understand a little background about what was going on in the late 19th century and early 20th century among evangelicals. And the term evangelical, in its historic meaning as it was used at that time, 
referred to Christians who believed that a person had to believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They had to believe the gospel in order to be born again and in order to be saved. They weren't saved just because of the universal fatherhood of God. They weren't saved just because they uh, were born into a church or were baptized. They had to hear the evangel, the gospel, from an evangelist and believe on the gospel in order to be saved. And so there were a number of strong evangelicals in the Anglican church in the 19th century, and research that uh, Tommy has done has shown that almost 80%, some have claimed that almost 80% of the pastors in the uh, Anglican church in the 19th century were premillennial. And there was a tremendous interest that developed from the 1840s on, as we've studied in the Israel series a few years ago, not only in bringing Jews back to the land and seeing a a homeland for the Jews established, but also in recognizing the imminency of Jesus Christ's return and putting a focus on teaching about Jesus' second coming and that Jesus is coming soon and the connection between that message and evangelism. And we've just seen some of that in our own lifetimes when you realize how many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, have trusted Christ by reading Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and then in just recent years, the late, uh, the Left Behind series, uh, fictional work that, that Tim LaHaye uh, co-authored, uh, also have seen a large number of people trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. So God has been pleased to use prophecy in order to make people aware of the fact that there is accountability, that there is a payday someday, as R.G. Lee titled his sermon, and that uh, one day we will appear before God and Jesus could come back tomorrow, and are you ready? And that message has resonated in the souls of uh, thousands and thousands of people over the last uh, hundred years, that then God has been pleased to use that to bring them to Christ. Well, in the last decades of the 19th century, and in the early part of the 20th century, this this wave almost reached tidal wave uh, proportions. And it came at the end of one of the most evangelistic and missionary-oriented centuries in the history of Great Britain. And they sent out numerous missionaries went with the uh, British army into South Africa and throughout Africa and into Egypt and into India and, and other areas uh, other areas of Asia carrying the gospel uh, along with the carrying their uh, carrying their rifles and the 19th century many historians believe and I agree with really didn't end in uh, 1900 the 19th century ended in 1918 with World War One, with the end of World War One, and that set the stage for really what be, what focused the uh, the 20th century, and that is true for what happened in a lot of things related to uh, even the history of evangelical evangelicalism. And in on December the 13th, 1917, there was a historic meeting at Queen's Hall in London that was led by one of the most well-known evangelistic. Uh, leaders of that day, a man by the name of Frederick Brotherton Meyer, usually known simply as F.B. Meyer. Some of you may have seen some of his works. I know when I was in high school, college, early 70s, uh, Campanile used to have a book table 
there at camp, and, and I picked up several of his books. I know when Gordon Whitelock was a student at Moody, Meyer was still alive, and he heard Meyer speak. Meyer had been close friends in his younger days, in his youth, with, uh, with, Dwight, uh, with Dwight Moody. And even though he was holiness in his approach to sanctification, which I wouldn't agree with now, it was still a good, they were still good books to read and challenging books to read. And, uh, he had a tremendous influence, especially in the prophetic movement. And so it was, uh, this December 13th movement that F.B. Meyer was, uh, appointed the head of this prophetic witness movement, uh, international. And they launched a new movement to focus uh, the teaching in England among the pastors on God's prophetic word and the soon coming of Jesus Christ, or the imminent return of Jesus Christ, rather. Today, that movement, which was originally called the Advent Testimony Movement, has become known as the Prophetic Witness Movement International and is the oldest surviving pre-trib organization in the world. I think Paul said that he's on the board for that organization, and both uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum and Dr. Uh, Dwight Pentecost of Dallas Seminary are honorary board members uh, on the board for the prophetic witness uh, movement. And so, <clears throat> anyway, at, at that particular time, on December the 13th, 1917, momentous things were happening in the world. It was the beginning of what would become the last year in World War I. And just prior to this, the, uh, <clears throat> the great news coming out of the Middle East was that uh, uh, General uh, 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 General Sir Edmund Allenby uh, had led the British Army into Beersheba in October. At the end of October, he had captured Beersheba, which is played up a lot in the film uh, Lawrence of Arabia, if you remember that. And then it was in December, during the time of Hanukkah, that he liberated Jerusalem uh, from the uh, Ottoman Turks. And this set the stage for many of the developments that have occurred in uh, the Holy Land since that time. Just prior to their meeting in December of 1917, at the end of that previous summer, F.B. Meyer called together a number of key pastors that he knew, just a small group and various leaders, to encourage them to mount a new campaign of teaching in, in Britain related to the second coming of Christ, that Jesus Christ is coming and it is imminent and it could be at any time. Just about six weeks later, on October the 15th, they had a second meeting, a prayer meeting in London, where they invited many other pastors to come. And again, the message was to challenge the pastors to make the, make the second coming of Christ a focal point. It's not the only focal point because it's always connected with a gospel message. And so as that took place, it was between October 15th and the end of the month, that they began to hear the good news about Allenby uh, defeating the Ottoman Turks in the area of the uh, the area of the Holy Land, and on October 31st, 1917, a date we can remember because that's also the date when uh, Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. Uh, the British and Anzac forces under Allenby's command captured Beersheba from the Ottoman Turks, and then they began to move on towards Jerusalem. Then on November 2nd, in a letter written by the British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to Lord Rothschild of the Zionist Federation, David Lloyd George's government formally approved 
the Balfour Declaration, which stated, which uh, approved the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. And so it seemed to F.B. Meyer and his contemporaries that the Lord was about ready to, to come back, that he was giving a clear signal that we were nearing some significant end-time events. And so they adopted an Advent Testimony Manifesto, which they released to the press on November the 8th, which was headlined, The Significance of the Hour. Can you imagine that today? If we at the pre-trib rapture study group had released a press release emphasizing these seven points, which we could emphasize today just just about the same way, do you think it would even make the Dallas Morning News or the Houston Chronicle or the New York Times or Washington Post? So here are the seven points. First of all, that the present crisis points towards the close of the times of the Gentiles. Pick your crisis, plug it in. That was World War One, World War Two, anything up to the present time. Second, that the revelation of our Lord may be expected at any moment when he will be manifested as evidently as to his disciples uh, on the evening of his, uh, of his resurrection. Third, that the completed church will be translated to be forever with the Lord. Fourth, that's the pre-trib rapture if you didn't catch it. Uh, fourth, that Israel will be restored to its own land in unbelief and be afterwards converted by the appearance of Christ on its behalf. Notice, that's not just something that came up in the pre-trib rapture study group just a few years ago. That has been around and part of dispensational teaching since the 19th century. Fifth, that all human schemes of reconstruction must be subsidiary to the second coming of the Lord, because all nations will then be subject to his rule. Sixth, that under the reign of Christ, there will be a further great effusion of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh. And seven, That's the new covenant, by the way. And seventh, that the truths embodied in this statement are of the utmost practical value in determining Christian character and action with reference to the pressing problems of the hour. And that is a, a, a tremendous statement. Later, F.B. Meyer emphasized the implications of the manifesto and wrote, The pressing duty of the church is to exercise her witnessing function. She is to bear witness to these and similar truths as they are contained in Scripture. Notice the emphasis on witnessing, not just in terms of evangelism, but being a legal witness, just as we've been talking about in Hebrews 11, why the writer of Hebrews is going back to those Old Testament saints, because their lives stand as a testimony and as a legal witness before the high court of heaven. So he says it's certain that such witness-bearing will incur dislike and opposition. It has always been so. Witnesses are often martyrs, but their lives, characters, and words are seed germs, which carry life as the seabirds carry to the coral isles the germs of vegetation. He certainly wasn't an evolutionist, was he? Uh, So this stimulated tremendous interest, uh, not only in Britain, but also in Europe, in America, in Africa, India, everywhere, uh, Australia and New Zealand, everywhere that the English-speaking gospel gospel went. 
And so the Committee for the Prophecy Investigation Society unanimously approved that. And then they set another meeting at Queens Hall for December the 13th, 1917. And this happened just four days after Allenby liberated Jerusalem. And so they were just, they were just stunned that this had happened uh, in their lifetime and it had uh, just electrified them. There were uh, several statements made by some of their leaders, William Fuller Gooch, 1843 to 1929, said that signs we discern, signs we appreciate in their solemn importance, signs we would study in the light of the divine word, but we are not looking for signs, we are looking for Christ. Now that is such an important statement. We see signs, we see things happening that portend the tribulation, but we're not saying that's a fulfillment. Those are the signs of the times that that is prophetic fulfillment. It just, it's going to come after Christ comes, but it indicates that that may be, uh, may be near. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, uh, stated from the hour of ascension until now it has been true that he might have come at any moment. I am quite sure that I speak what is in the hearts of all God's waiting children when I say that we should rejoice indeed if by his coming he ended the very testimony we are bearing to him tonight. G. Campbell Morgan was a major figure in uh, evangelicalism and Christianity in the first half of the uh, 20th century. He was uh, close to uh, Dwight Moody. He lectured at Moody Bible Institute at the end of the 19th uh, century. He made 54 crossings of the Atlantic to preach and teach in America. After Moody died, he became the director of the Northfield Bible Conference in Northfield, Massachusetts, where uh, Moody had held that conference. Uh, his preaching, uh, regular preaching, uh, led to his becoming the pastor of the Westminster Chapel of London. He later left that to come to the United States, where he was a uh, traveling preacher, itinerant preacher and teacher for 14 years. And then in 1933, he went back to England, where he became the pastor of the Westminster Chapel again. And he was one of the uh, great uh, evangelicals of the early 19th century, died just about a week after World War II ended. And then Alfred Taylor Schofield. Ah, how beautiful we should be if our faces were ever turned towards the light. How we should witness for our master if the reflection of the morning star could be seen in our eyes. What he's saying is if the rapture, the imminency of the rapture were as real to you as it ought to be, you would not have any hesitancy in telling everybody about the, the gospel so that they would be, uh, so that they would be prepared. And one of the others who spoke at that particular meeting was one I referenced in the title that I gave this little talk tonight, and that is having to do with the Titanic, two witnesses and a testimony. Uh, and the first of these witnesses was an Anglican vicar who spoke at that meeting in 1917, and his name was John Stuart Holden. His dates were from 1874 to 1934, he was a well-known and popular speaker in churches throughout Britain and North America. He was uh, dispensational in many of his beliefs. And in April of 1912, he was due to speak to a Christian Conservation Congress at Carnegie Hall in New York. But on April the 9th, just the day before he was to leave Southampton, his wife fell ill and he had to cancel the trip. The ship he was due to sail on was the RMS Titanic.
And on April the 20th, the New York Times reported that Holden had narrowly escaped disaster. Holden returned his unused ticket, but he kept the envelope and had it mounted. And in thanksgiving to God, he inscribed on the frame the words, Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, Psalm 103.4. It's the only surviving document of its type, and it's today held in the Maritime Museum in Liverpool. And so this is a copy of a facsimile that uh, Paul had just uh, recently uh, come into possession of. So that's the first testimony was the testimony of he, that he had because God had preserved his life. God has a plan and kept him alive for his ministry. But there was a second, there was a second hero, a second testimony that uh, related to the Titanic. It was related to an evangelist by the name of John Harper. John Harper was a Baptist pastor from Glasgow, Scotland, and he had been invited by A.C. Dixon, who was an American, who was the pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and he had been invited to speak at the Metropolitan Tabernacle on February 29th in 1912. Then not long after that, he was to go to the Moody uh, church in Chicago in order to uh, speak there. He had spoken there before when they had had one of the most significant revivals in their history. So when he was asked to return to Chicago, he made arrangements for himself and his six-year-old daughter. And there we have a picture of uh, John Harper with his daughter and his wife that was taken just before they uh, just before they left. He was initially to travel to America on board the Lusitania, which had its own destiny eventually, but decided to delay their departure for one week so that they could sail on a new ship which was making its maiden voyage, and this was the Titanic. And so what he missed in order to look after his... Uh, uh, what, it's the ship that John Stewart Holden had missed when he looked after his... A sick wife. When the Titanic struck an iceberg at 11.40 p.m. on April the 14th, 1912, the call was issued for passengers to vacate their cabins. Harper wrapped his daughter in a blanket, and he told her he would, she would see him again one day and passed her to one of the crewmen. After watching her safely board one of the lifeboats, he then took off his own life jacket, and he gave it to another one of the passengers, and one survivor distinctly remembers him uh, going throughout the ship saying, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. And as he stayed on the ship that was beginning to sink, he went from person to person to plead with them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that they would be saved. As the ship began to sink, he went to the orchestra, and there's been some debate over this by the secular historians, but not according to the, uh, those who have written about him. He went to the Titanic's orchestra and had them play, Nearer My God to Thee. And he gathered the people around him and knelt down upon the deck of the ship, and with holy joy in his face, he raised his arms in prayer. And as the ship began to lurch, he jumped into the icy waters, and he began to swim from person to person, 
pleading with them to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him as their Savior. We know this because four years later, a young Scotsman by the name of Aguilla Webb stood up in a meeting in Hamilton, Canada, and he gave this testimony. He said, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow, also on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I'm not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away, but strange to say, brought him back a little later. And he said, are you saved now? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after, he went down. And there, alone in the night, and with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. I ran across a... I think you can still get this book, The Titanic's Last Hero. I ran across that in searching uh, searching the Internet today. I didn't take the time to see if I could uh, still order it or get it, but this story was rather rather well known, as uh, as indicated also by the monthly, I've got the wrong one up there, the monthly e- evangel there that pictures him with his, his daughter um, who survived. I'd like to find out the rest of that story. Uh, and his wife. And if you read along the uh, columns on each side of the picture, it says the Reverend John Harper, who lost his life in the Titanic uh, disaster. Uh, Mr. Harper's, oh, this is a picture of Mr. Harper's niece, Miss Leach, and his daughter, Nana, who were saved. So uh, that is just one of those great stories. You'll never watch any of those movies of the Titanic again without realizing why. I think it's in A Night to Remember. Some of the others may have him playing Near My God to Thee. I know the one with Clifton Webb and Barbara Stanwyck, A Night to Remember, has him playing that at the end. And I've always always thought about that, and it's great to now know uh, the rest of the story. So those two men, one who lived and one who was taken to be with the Lord, had great had a great testimony with their lives and a witness in um, in the heavenly accounts, a witness to both angels and to men. Now, we're studying the same kind of thing in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, so turn with me there. I think it's important to be reminded that, you know, we can have that same kind of testimony. The writer of Hebrews is really emphasizing that, when he comes to this section, because he's encouraging, he's challenging these Jewish believers that are under persecution and oppression and rejection from their countrymen, and, and they, they're, they're at a point where they just want to give up on their Christianity and say, doctrine doesn't work, God doesn't work, Jesus doesn't work, I'm going to go back into Judaism. And he's encouraging them by showing that this is the pattern throughout history, the pattern of patience and believers that the reward is not seen in your lifetime, 
but and it wasn't seen in their lifetime, but they had faith in the promise, and their faith changed the way they lived, which is why he states in the first verse, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it, that is, by means of our faith, the elders obtained a good testimony, and that's really a awkward way of translating that verb. It's the verb martyreo, meaning to give a testimony, but it's in the passive voice, which has something to do with the the subject um, receiving a a, a validation, uh, and that's the that's the idea there. It re- sort of reverses the idea, so that by their faith. The elders didn't obtain a good testimony, but their testimony was validated. Uh, probably conveys the idea better, uh, better than anything else. And so the writer of Hebrews goes through one hero after another, indicating uh, how they continue to focus on the promise of God no matter what was going on in their life, no matter how much it didn't seem to be fulfilled, and that that was the essence of their testimony before the high court of heaven. And, of course, as we begin with this, we think of these great heroes of the faith from the Old Testament, uh, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, and now we're going to get into Isaac and Jacob and Joseph in the next three verses, and then, of course, uh, Moses and Joshua. But there were many, many others that he's going to summarize as he comes to the end. And the thing that we see here is these are men who had great failures as well as tremendous spiritual successes because, after all, we are all sinners. We're all growing and maturing, and we're all going through that process of spiritual growth and spiritual advance. And so tonight we come to the next verse, which is verse 20. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Now, let me skip ahead here. Okay. Concerning things to come. Now, if you look at this verse and you think about it just a little bit, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Anybody have a problem with that? What were the circumstances around Isaac's blessing Jacob and Esau? And notice the order. Jacob is put there first, not Esau. Jacob is the younger, Esau is the older, and the order here is given in the correct spiritual order, not in the birth order, because God was teaching something, and there's an important doctrine that comes out of this, in terms of the doctrine of the younger serving uh, the older serving the younger, rather, the older serving the younger, because the natural law, the law of human culture, was based on, uh, is comparable to works. Whoever was born first gets the double blessing, the double inheritance. But the ones who are born later, they, they don't get, get, receive as much in terms of the, the inheritance. And yet God was going to show through uh, Jacob and Esau, through Joseph and his brothers, uh, that it's the the older that will serve the younger. God is going to reverse the normal human procedure in order to t- teach this principle that God's way is different from man's way. His way is not our way. Isaiah 55, 8, his thinking is, is above our thinking. And that he is going to take the one that seems to be humanly weaker 
with less privilege to be the one that he is going to work his plan through. This is not a soteriological choice. This has to do with the choice within the plan of God in developing uh, developing the nation Israel. So in order to catch the thrust and the significance of this one brief statement, we need to go back and just pick up some things that are covered in the Old Testament. So uh, put a marker there in Hebrews 11 and turn with me back to Genesis chapter uh, 25. Genesis chapter 25. Now remember, we talked about Isaac last time. Isaac was the promised seed, the one whom God had promised to Abraham uh, over uh, 20 years uh, earlier, by this time over 50, 75 years earlier, that it was in Isaac that the seed would be named. And so Isaac was the one that the promise would come through, but Isaac had the same problem, faced the same challenge that Abraham had faced, and that was that he was married to a woman who could not give birth, a barren woman. And I've covered the doctrine of the barren woman in the past, that there are uh, six women in Scripture who are barren. There is one who is a virgin. The barren women are a picture uh, or a type of Mary the virgin because they could not have children, yet God is the one who brought life where there was no life, where there was death, as a picture of what he did would do spiritually through the one who was born through the virgin birth. He would miraculously create life in her womb, and uh, in him would be life for the world. And so we read in... Um, Genesis 25:20 that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the, Syr- the Syrian. And he, he pleaded with the Lord for years because she was barren, and even though we're not told how long, a number of years had to have gone by to recognize the reality of the fact that she was barren. And the Lord blessed him, and much in the same way as Abraham, and she finally gave birth, and she was pregnant. It was obvious she had twins, and they were struggling within her. And when we look at verse 22, we read, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, this is the clear statement of God's plan, is that the older would serve the younger. And in making this statement, he's making it clear that his plan is for the older to serve the younger and for the blessing to go to the younger and not the older even though that contradicted the cultural uh, norm of the law of primogenitor, which meant that the firstborn would receive all of the inheritance. Now we read on that when her days were fulfilled, she gave birth to the twins, and the first one came out red. Uh, he was ruddy. He had uh, his, his hair covered him, and it was, it was red. So they called him Esau because it's, it's, he's red and ruddy. And immediately afterward, his brother came out, and his hand was grabbing hold of his brother's hand, uh, brother's heel, 
And so he was called Yaakov because he's the heel grabber. And there's a play on words there indicating someone who's deceptive, someone who's always trying to turn the tables on somebody else, always trying to take advantage of others. And the idea there is he grabbing the heel of his brother. He's trying to, trying to, uh, reverse the birth order there. And so I have the birth of the twins, Esau the elder and Jacob the younger. And this is when Esau is 60 years of age, and we're told that they grew up, and Esau was a man of the field. He loved to hunt. He loved to fish. He would take off and hike through the through the mountains, but Isaac liked to stay home. He was more interested in taking care of uh, more of the domestic challenges around the house, and I don't mean that in a in any kind of n- negative way, like he's, he uh, uh, just stayed home and that he stayed close to his mother, but he was closest to his mother, but he was interested in doing things at home. You get the sense he's more responsible, but Esau's out there uh, in the fields, wandering around, uh, hunting, and not taking on the responsibilities of taking care of all of the all of the herds and all the flocks. And and the episode at the end of the chapter is that uh, Esau comes home one day, and Jacob has been cooking a red lentil stew. And when Esau comes in, he hasn't eaten. It hasn't been a good hunting season. And so he is hungry, and he's, he's worn out, and he smells the uh, lentil stew, and he uh, begs for some. But Jacob's the heel grabber. He's the, he's the one who's out there to make a deal. And so he said, okay, I'll let you have something to eat, but let's trade for it. You sell me your birthright uh, this day. So even though I'm sure the boys knew the story of the what God had said about the uh, older serving the younger, Jacob is going to try to get it without waiting on the Lord. He's trying to manipulate the situation, and so he's going to do it his own way. And Esau doesn't care, which shows that he, at this stage, he has no concern for God or what, or, or what God has promised, and he has no, has placed no value on the birthright. Birthright would relate directly to Abraham's promise to, I mean, of God's promise to Abraham related to the land, seed, and the blessing. And so Jacob made him swear, made him sign a legal, make him legal oath that he's giving him his birthright. He wasn't going to let him get anything to eat until he made sure he had the deal uh, signed and sealed and he had the birthright. And so he gave Esau then uh, the bread and the lentil stew. Then we skip over to chapter 27, and we see the next stage in the drama when uh, uh, Jacob now wants to get the blessing. These two things went together, the blessing and the birthright. And they're very similar words in the Hebrew, and so there is something of a play on words, something of a a paranomasia there. The blessing is the baraka, 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 and the birthright is the bechorot. B-K-R is the, are the three consonants in bechora. B-K-R and blessing is B-R-K. So it's just the reversal of the R and the K. Hebrew is, is a, a language where the roots of words are based on three letters. And so just the reversal of those two letters, the only difference between these two words, and so there's a play on words uh, back and forth there. And now uh, uh, Jacob wants to get the uh, get the blessing 
along with the birthright. These are legal concepts related to uh, related to inheritance. By this time, uh, Isaac is old; his eyes are dim; he, he can't see as well; he can't make out which boy is which. And so uh, he comes in, and Esau comes in, and and uh, Isaac asks him to go out and hunt to get some good uh, venison for him or something to bring in and make him a meal and that he would bless him before he died this is important. this is passing on the birth the uh, the blessing the family blessing uh for inheritance but rebecca is listening outside the door and she overhears this and she wants uh isaac to get it i mean uh, she she wants jacob to get it and so she is uh, uh more concerned about that and figuring out a way to manipulate the situation so she calls to jacob and she's got a plan and her plan is to go out and to uh, get some uh, get some game and to and to cook a meal from I'm mean, not some game but to, a goat and to fix, and to prepare it so that it tastes like uh, uh, like the game and then she is going to send this in with uh, with Jacob and have him wear uh, uh, some leather some that still had the uh, wool on it so that he would seem to be hairy like his brother Esau, and so he would disguise himself and fool and deceive his father. And he pulled it off. And so he takes the food in there. Jacob is not sure who it is, but when he feels him and feels the uh, the, the hairy uh, garment, he thinks he's convinced that it's Esau, and so he then uh, will bless uh, bless Jacob. And we read about this down in verse 19. Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. And then uh, skipping down, uh, we read the blessing in verse 27. Notice this. He says, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth, talking about prosperity and agricultural productivity, and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. Now, what does that sound like? This sounds like the Abrahamic Covenant. There we go over on this screen. That projector, for some reason, isn't working. What I tried to do on this slide is to just take the two key verses on the Abrahamic Covenant in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, and color code it to what is being said uh, in the by, by uh, Isaac to Jacob. I made Jacob's statements yellow, whereas God's statements are white, but the blue and the blue compare, and the kind of the lavender pink and the pink compare. I will make you a great nation, God said. And Jacob, uh, Isaac said to Jacob, let the, in verse 29, Genesis 27, 29, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. And then in Genesis 12, 3, God said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And at the end, uh, Isaac says to Jacob, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. So the blessing here is a transfer of the Abrahamic covenant to the line of the sea, to the line of, of Jacob uh, from Abraham. 
And then Esau comes in, and Esau realizes what has taken place, and he comes in and he tells his father who he is, and Isaac is just just becomes distraught because he has given the blessing, and he can't reverse it. This is part of the cultural uh, realities. It was a legally binding contract. And so Esau then pleads with him in verse 34 to bless him. Also, isn't there something left that you can uh, bless me with? And so uh, not only has, he says in 36, not only did my brother take away my birthright, but now he's taking away my blessing. Haven't you reserved something for me? And so in verse 39, Isaac blesses uh, Esau. He says, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of the heaven from above in the outside. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And so this sets up a history of conflict between uh, the descendants of Esau and the descendants of, of Jacob. Isaac, though, is deceived, but even in his deception, he is trusting in the promise of God of the, for that the Abrahamic promise would be passed on down through him to his son. And so when we read in uh, Hebrews 11 that by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, there is a, a reference to the reality that despite the deception, he is trusting God, he's trusting in the promise, even though he never sees it in his lifetime, he passes it on to his Descendants. Next time, we'll see how Jacob passes it on when he is dying in Genesis chapter uh, 49, and he passes the blessing on to the sons of Joseph. And again, we'll see the same principle of the younger, uh, the older serving the younger as he, Joseph, tries to trick his father, bring the kids up in the right order so that his hands will come out and his right hand will be on the older and his left hand on the younger and Oh, Jacob just crosses his hands and and passes on uh, passes on the blessing. But they understood the principle that God may not answer your prayer the way you think He will, when you think He will. That the promise may be delayed beyond your lifetime. Jesus may not come back for another two hundred years. But nevertheless, we're not going to let that cause us to falter or fail in pursuing spiritual maturity. Let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to be encouraged again by these examples of faith, examples of those who hang in there, stick with it, don't give up, no matter how tough it is, no matter how much the struggle hurts, the focus is on you and the reality of what you have provided for us. Father, we pray that you'd strengthen and encourage those here in this congregation and those who listen who are facing some serious uh, challenges, that you would just strengthen them spiritually, strengthen them in their faith, that they might continue to grow and be a, a strong testimony to your grace and to your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.